Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about my conversation today with Priya Kapila. Priya is an FMI partner, the leader of our compensation practice, and a certified compensation professional with 16 years of hands-on experience in helping clients design the right compensation strategies to accomplish their goals. She'll be here to talk about compensation trends, best practices, how to maximize the return on your compensation dollars, and ultimately how to leverage compensation effectively in the war for talent. Well, Priya, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Let's start out with just a brief overview of the different types of compensation plans. So simply stated, naturally, we begin with the obvious of base pay that more or less any employee is going to receive. And and commonly in my field, we're going to refer to that as fixed compensation. So what is known, what is certain. And then on the other side of the equation, we have variable compensation. And that's where uh, different types of incentive plans are going to lie, both short-term incentives, which classically might be an annual bonus or spot or discretionary bonus of some kind, and as well as long-term incentives, which may be equity-based, so it's truly stock-oriented or related to some type of non-equity, so deferred cash compensation programs or synthetic equity that considers phantom stock or stock appreciation rights. That's helpful. I appreciate the background. It'd be great to, to talk a little bit more about just how are the, those various types of plans used and what scenarios? So beyond base pay, we do see the vast majority of companies in the industry using short-term incentives. So upwards of 90, 95% of companies in the industry are offering annual bonuses, again, which may be purely discretionary. So determining on an annual basis, subjectively, what everyone might receive as a bonus or uh, taking a more performance-based approach where there are structured or targeted performance expectations in place. And that results in a given incentive award. The mix of companies using discretionary or structured is roughly 50-50 at this point. We're seeing slow migration towards a more performance-based approach, but it is a gradual shift over time. And then as far as long-term incentives go, that is a more of a rarity within the industry. Less than half of companies are using some type of long-term incentive. And that really is covering everything from, again, simple deferred cash programs, which in many ways are just a a long-range wait for a bonus or a multi-year payout to that bonus up through stock programs for employees. Priya, as you described the 50-50 breakdown between objective and subjective or discretionary plans, I'm curious, what does the data tell us in terms of the effectiveness of both? From a data-driven perspective, it's difficult to truly measure the effectiveness. But in terms of observations, what we see in the marketplace is there is a great deal of value in telling employees or communicating to employees how they can go about earning that incentive. Very frequently, we're looking at for the company's sake and and financial sustainability, we're looking at what is the cost of incentives to the company. 
And so naturally, if we can determine what that cost is and how we're best using that cost or how we can translate that cost into incentives that are promoting profitability or overall success for the business, we're we're better served. The company is better served through that effort. And then drilling that down to the employee level, telling them how they can support company profitability, company success. There's a great deal of value and benefit in doing so, as opposed to taking the subjective approach, which frequently we see builds, certainly not across the entire employee base, but some perceptions around entitlement or clear expectations, what they plan to receive. We've heard in companies before the reference to a bonus as a deferred salary. So basically that it is a a certain known quantity and it's just being held back from them or that it's the 13th month of their pay that they're waiting to receive on the back end as opposed to something that they're actually working, that employees are actually working towards. So Priya, you you manage our proprietary compensation survey business, which includes, by last account, approximately 200 company participants and about 60,000 different employee participants. I'm curious, what's the data telling us with respect to to compensation trends? Where are things headed likely in 2024? It's a good question, Scott. And and as you can imagine, at this point in the year, that's top of mind for, for many companies. Something we're seeing as as we look ahead at where the industry is going overall and, and where the current outlook is as we head into 24 is what salary increases or employee raises might look like early in the year. And so our current average projection is right at 4%. That is lower than what we've seen in 2022 as well as 2023. Still remains above where we've been for roughly the decade leading up to 2022, but it is notable that in many cases we're seeing some slightly more cautious reflection from companies across the industry. Sort of building on that, I'm curious, how, in, in your experience, how do organizations determine the right incentive compensation structure for their employees or for their teams? Considering objectives first uh, is always critical, uh, frankly, thinking about the why uh, when it comes to why incentives are paid or how they're paid and ensuring that what the end goal is for the business is reflected in performance considerations or payout schedules and structures for incentives so that there is alignment there. Communication is key as well. It's not uncommon for me to suggest that that the communication of a given incentive program matters almost as much as the amount of the awards themselves, that employees have that clear understanding of what the behaviors or often more importantly, what the outcomes are that might drive how they earn an incentive award. I love that answer. As soon as you said the outcomes, the first thing that popped in my mind was Charlie Munger is famous for saying, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. So humans tend to behave and tend to be oriented towards, you know, achieving some form of incentive. Starting with the why first, starting with what you're solving for first, 
It's a great way to reverse engineer what the comp plan should look like. And yeah, naturally, in my role, I would love to say that compensation is everything. That is certainly not the case, but it, it can be a clear motivator and clear reinforcer of other desired behaviors and outcomes. Well, just, just to kind of build more on your thread about the communication plan is as important, if not more important, than the plan itself. Can, can you say more about that? So very often it goes back to that comparison of discretionary versus performance-based programs, where if it's a discretionary plan, there's very little communicated and worst case scenario, there's just enough, an extra amount showing up as direct deposit for an employee. There's no real backing to it, good or bad. So the employee is drawing their own conclusions as to what they've earned in the past, what they've earned or what they thought they'd be earning, what the award amount is as a carve out of the project fee and making their own interpretation of whether that's a rewarding bonus or not. By contrast, when we or when uh, company leaders really are communicating what the performance expectation is at the beginning of a year, allowing employees to work toward that performance expectation with key milestones or touch points along the way to course correct or to encourage over time, and then seeing that award on the the back end at the end of the year when results are known can be that more realistic prompt of how an employee goes about truly earning an incentive as opposed to just receiving one. It shifts the role of, of simply being the recipient of what is by and large a gift from the company to employees acting as active contributors. Very, very helpful. Just to kind of build on that, if we think just specifically about short-term incentive comp plans or S-tips, as companies are in the design phase and figuring out what, what is it that we're solving for, how would you counsel leadership teams in taking that first step? You know, what, what questions really need to be answered in your mind to design the right plan? There's multiple factors to think about that should play directly into the formalization of the short-term incentive plan. Those include first objectives, of course, but then beyond that, eligibility. So who are those key roles or employees that need to be in the program? For many companies, for short-term incentives, that may be all employees. For other companies, given the goals in place, given the financial outlook in place, a more restricted view may be needed. And then moving from that eligible pool of employees to performance measures is, is a key next step in identifying what are the company performance expectations, what are the individual performance expectations, and then if and when appropriate, are there division, department, or team performance measures to include as well? And how does that blend of performance measures then weight together to produce an overall program consisting of those various performance metrics and factors. How about as far as LTIPS go, so long-term incentive plans, you know, how would you go about helping firms figure out what are the right questions to answer on the front end in that regard? Yeah, generally we see three primary reasons that long-term incentive plans may be used. 
The first is simply for retention. And in today's environment, that tends to be the primary objective for a long-term incentive program in that we are just identifying those key employees or key positions that are essentially mission critical. So how can we produce a plan that encourages a monetary means for employees to stay with the firm? The second is to build out an ownership mindset. And in many ways, this is the the legacy or historical establishment of long-term incentives. That the idea was that while equity may not be on the table, there is an award we can offer that has the look and feel of equity so that employees can participate in a way that that gives the feeling of ownership. In the meantime, owners aren't giving up any voting rights or a stake in the company. That's relatively common in the industry as well, where we do see many very closely held businesses where equity may not be something that can be offered to key employees, but there is an alternative through synthetic equity or even some cash-based plan structured in a certain way. And then the final and third reason long-term incentive plans might be used is to truly transfer equity, where rather than awarding cash-based or cash-settled award grants, where rather than awarding cash-based awards, we are actually granting stock, which may be subject to vesting or various restrictions, but put in motion that process of transferring stock from one one group of owners to a new group. That's that's helpful. I'm curious, as you mentioned, just the retention aspect of, of LTIPS. What have you seen with regard to the prominence of LTIPS over the last, say, three to five years? As he's a cliche, the war for talent has really heated up. We have seen growth. It's been gradual. At the, the beginning of that period, I'd say roughly a third or so of companies were using some type of long-term incentive program. Our latest data suggests that just shy of 50% at this point. And a key trend we've seen too during that same time frame is long-term incentives being pushed uh, deeper into the organization. So historically, we saw long-term incentives largely held at just the C-suite level or C-suite and and one tier below. These days, we may well see project managers or superintendents, certainly not all of them, but but that level of role having the opportunity to earn a long-term incentive award. Curious what you've seen, whether it's empirical or anecdotal data, how effective are S-tips at retaining employees? And then same question for L-tips. What's showing up in the in the data? With short-term incentives, I think that the classic reference is the concern that we always see some turnover happen as soon as the award is made. So whether it's January 1, we see a, a small exodus or small contingency leave after they've received their incentive. Or for those companies that are awarding incentives in March, we see that exodus in April. So there's some something to think about there as far as any real residual value. We do see some companies divide their bonus structures, so pay out some portion of the award early in the year or, or at the end of the performance year 
and then wait until you know later in the summer or early fall of the following performance year to pay out the remainder. I'll admit I I don't know that that's all that effective and and if we're being honest with ourselves we don't want someone simply staying for the money but it is something to think about and and even for those companies that are waiting until March 15th or out at or about March 15th to be paying out that short term incentive if there's a communication around performance expectations we're nearly at the end of first quarter at that point so if we have a clearly defined plan, the goal would be that the employee is already vested in that next performance year by the time the bonus is being paid. And that may have some retention impact. When it comes to long-term incentives, uh, the structure of the award itself so often plays into how effective they are in retaining employees. We have to think about what the amount is, what the vesting period is, what the performance expectations are, and and if the company is performing as intended, and what the long-term impact of that looks like, both for the company as well as the employee in question. Just switching gears to a degree, I'm curious just from your experience, what are some common mistakes you see companies make fairly frequently when designing compensation plans? So often we see a a bit of a pendulum swing when it comes to the simplicity or complexity of incentive plans. So as I've mentioned, we we see discretionary programs. They remain quite popular in, in the marketplace. And there may well be that realization that more structure is needed or the incorporation of performance measures would be effective. When I speak to that pendulum swing, the result of that is we see very complicated, very formulated plans being developed that ultimately prove to be far too restrictive. Or in uncertain times, we see incentive plans that are too complex or or too structured not working uh, so that top performers may not be receiving the full benefit that they might otherwise or or low performers benefiting when a, a business would rather they not. And then the result of that is, again, a return to a very discretionary structure without really landing at that, that perfect midpoint that is really most effective in terms of communicating a plan that can be clearly and easily understood by employees. The other big pitfall is, again, thinking about the objectives and the intent of the plan itself. For some companies, the goal may be simply a desire to be generous and share profits or some portion of profits with employees. If that's the case, then that's communicated and follows the organizational culture that may be effective. For other companies, let's make sure that employees are informed of performance measures and expectations and their roles that should translate into the intended overall company goals. So that line of sight is very clear and well understood by employees. And and very often that can be missing. Going back to something you shared a minute ago, just thinking about the scenario where you'll likely put your best project manager, superintendent, foreman, what have you, on your worst, toughest, nastiest projects just to hold serve, which could be a win. 
or to minimize a loss in some cases, and you might put your, maybe not your A-team on some of the projects you expect to just uh, write down the fairway. You know, a lot of folks could step in and be successful. And just sort of knowing what you're designing for and solving for in the incentive plans to be able to accommodate that. Absolutely. We certainly see that. And that is frankly a key reason that, that it's rare that we see strict project profit-based incentive programs working well for any company. They can easily lead a business down the wrong path for the very circumstances you're describing. Instead, that more balanced approach of considering multiple performance measures, it can more effective. So not simply thinking about project profitability for operations roles, but also client satisfaction, team satisfaction for that matter, and, and broader project-based variables like schedule, like safety, and so on, and ensuring that all of those values or factors are considered in a way that can best reinforce what is desired from project team members, but also reward them accordingly when when things go to plan. Ensuring that the bar is set appropriately matters too. So in the case where where we know we're putting top performers and a perfect world we're breaking even, uh, let's set the bar according uh, in that in a manner that rewards them when that is the end result as opposed to, diminishing the values or contributions they've had. To your point, you know, setting the bar appropriately, landing the plane at break even is worth writing a check to a team for a bonus versus losing however many millions they may have lost had they not put the right team on it to land the plane. At the same time, that that consideration for overall company performance always matters too. Generally, we're not recommending that bonuses are paid out and the company is in the red as a result, and making sure that employees understand that too. From a conceptual standpoint, it's easy to understand. It can be a hard message sometimes in, in difficult years, but but there is something to be said for company sustainability over one year of incentive awards. Well, it's what's the mental model about relationships. You know, there's four permutations. You know, there's win-win, win-lose, lose-win, and lose-lose. And really only one of those scenarios survives over time. And so if you think about the company and the employee are in a relationship, it's got to be win-win throughout time or it's just not going to work on either, on either side. So we've touched on this in a couple of different areas, but just to just to put a finer point on it, given the the war for talent and what we've seen in the talent marketplace and the and the arms race around compensation over the last couple of years, what would be your advice to companies and to leaders in terms of adapting their incentive comp plans to remain competitive and to stay in front uh, as it relates to attracting and keeping talent? I think giving clear consideration to what incentive awards are as, as a cost to the business as well as a, a benefit to the employee is, is a key consideration, meaning we, we talk about that top-down structure of just what's the allocation of profits that is going towards incentives. At the same time, we need to couple that or reconcile that with what is market competitive for every employee or every incentive-eligible employee based on their role. Not to say that all employees necessarily 
know what is market competitive for them, but increasingly there's a baseline understanding of what they can command in an incentive award in the marketplace. And so making sure that if an employee is meeting performance expectations and they're also getting the communication that the company is meeting performance expectations, they should have a reasonable desire and, and ultimately uh, receive an award that that aligns with what is competitive and reasonable in the, the specific market they're operating at. Kind of transitioning to metrics. Curious what you find, Priya, with respect to KPIs and the metrics that organizations should track as it relates to compensation. Far and away, and I'm sure it's no surprise, the most common measure of, admittedly, it's on the back end, but it's largely financially driven. We are looking at profitability as, as the key measure uh, that's used at, at the company level, at any type of team level as well. When we're looking more at, at proactive efforts, we are seeing when it comes to individual performance measurements, training and development coming across increasingly as, as a driver or reward that's recognized in incentive program. While many companies, I'm sure, would like this to be a, a built-in endeavor and initiative, putting some money behind it, so to speak, does help encourage employees to take that step to acknowledge that their continued professional development is a key part of their role and that and it's in a program can encourage them in that direction. So when the time comes, they're continuing to move down or move up the career path in place for them and, and be recognized for that, not just through promotional opportunities, but through incentive awards as well. Moving to the concept of pay equity, from your experience, Priya, how can organizations ensure that their compensation plans are equitable and non-discriminatory in this environment? It's interesting you bring that up, Scott. We just wrapped up our compensation summit, which is an annual conference we hold for survey participants. And so a number of our leading participating companies when it comes to uh, the compensation and benefit surveys were present. And this was probably the, the key topic or most frequently mentioned topic that was brought up as far as idea sharing of, and collaboration on what should or could be done when it comes to pay equity. And, and I'll say closely related to this is, is the transparency uh, regulations that we're seeing with increasing frequency. And, and so ways to mitigate or safeguard against the possibility of, of not being equitable are, are really done first through that confirmation of what is market competitive for all roles. In addition, evaluating roles internally truly matters. So I'll refer to that as uh, classifying jobs accordingly or in a broad sense, undertaking a job architecture effort to really ensure that positions that are comparable within the organization or intended to be comparable within the organization are recognized as such and that career tracks and overall organizational hierarchy is very clear. 
and that that is then aligned with what is competitive in the market. So we have that blending of internal and external practices and, and ultimately from a compensation standpoint, then developing formalized ranges, which remove some of the, the questions or the guessing when it comes to setting pay, as well as highly disparate practices that may occur with, with one manager in one region versus another. You know, it's, and there's a lot of work in that, just in observing your team work with clients over the years. I mean, there's a lot of upfront work that needs to be done to just align job descriptions, right? Because a project executive in company A may do something entirely different than it does in company B. That's exactly right. Yeah, titles only get used so far. And, and while I'll, I'll admit titles can be a very sensitive subject with employees from time to time, we we tend to care a lot less about what the title is alone and are far more interested in what are the true duties and responsibilities of the job. That relates not just to functions, but to levels as well, which as I talk about job architecture, is an increasing question from a lot of uh, fast-growing companies right now in the market where we are being asked that question, what, what is an appropriate number of levels we should have within the project management field, within field supervision? And taking a look at that, again, from what is common practice among similarly-sized companies, but also just what makes good business sense for the company in question. So Priya, just to wrap up, super helpful conversation as it relates to compensation and all the things we've talked about. One of the areas that I'd be curious about is, is one of the common frustrations we often hear from leaders is that they don't feel like they're getting a return on the compensation dollars that they pay. Having said that, how would you counsel clients to maximize the return on their compensation dollars? Well, Scott, I'll, I'll first give the, the answer that's not quite an answer and, and speak back to that popularity of just incentives in the industry. And, and to some degree, it's, it's part of the game that employees, by and large, be eligible for incentives. But to your point, if, if we're paying out incentives, let's make sure they're being awarded for best use or in the best manner possible. And, and that's where, again, I'll, I'll point to setting clear performance measures and making sure those are, quote unquote, the right performance measures. And that that is set beginning with the overall company objectives and how those are communicated out. I'll sideline for a moment and say most companies are not necessarily communicating the, their quantitative financial expectations uh, when it comes to performance goals. So it's not the actual dollar number that's reported out to all employees. We, we get a lot of questions around that. And the reality is when it comes to an incentive plan, for most employees, it really doesn't matter what uh, the dollars are. They want to know what's in it for them. If they're putting a lot of effort forth what can they expect as an award on the back end? And so frequently we'll advise that percent of goal or percent of that performance expectation and target be communicated as opposed to strictly a, a dollars driven approach. And so once we have that company performance goal or measures in place, 
we then move downstream to say, what are the individual components of the incident program? And what expectations do we have for each individual, which can be complicated and quite the endeavor in and of itself for businesses, but is, is truly that way of building a motivating and engaging incentive plan where you now have clear direction for employees as to how they can go about truly earning their incentive. And ideally, of course, the, those expectations and goals at the employee level are rolling up into overall company performance. That's great. Well, that's probably a good place to end it. Priya, thank you so much. As always, great to see you. Thanks for your input and your expertise. Thanks, Scott. It was great to speak with you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss another episode. 